Hi, I'm Megan Ranks. And I'm Melissa D. Motts. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Kevin Heggie, um, I mean, this is a pleasure for me because I watched your documentary Tramps over the weekend and I was on the periphery of um, of that whole new romantic scene. And for me, it's a little bit, um, it's like a love letter um, to it in a way. It's a sort of explanation of, where it came from it's got all these tangential aspects to it and explains really what the importance of it was and no one's really done that before so i want to congratulate on that you on that and obviously we're going to talk a lot about that but i want to start with you and your cultural upbringing when you were very young what your parents listened to what sort of movies they watched and what you were surrounded by at that time yeah, my parents were really like, I have a very musical family. Like my mom was in like the local band. She played alto sax and um, my parents like to party, you know, but they're like from the 50s. So they listen to a lot of, you know, all the hits from the 50s, like um, Elvis and and whatever else. Um, Bobby Darin. Yeah, like kind of American 50s music. Um, and but we're kind of just generally hungry uh, you know, um, for, you know, musical input all the time. My dad used to take me to the city, Toronto, because I'm from like a really small town. Um, and that was kind of our father something. I obviously didn't play sports or anything like that. So um, we would go and, and uh, go to like record shows and stuff like that. So that was kind of in terms of, um, I really think, you know, the movies are just a, a package that you can put together all of this, my personal obsessions into to something that you can share. So, um, did they place a value on, on on a cultural life? Because if they had a cultural life, they must have had they must have had some value to it. Whereas if I look at my parents, there was absolutely no value in sort of pursuing any form of cultural life. It sounds like you came from a family that at least saw that as a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, my dad collected records and he was a photographer. So he would they they would take me to concerts and and stuff. Um, And like, you know, when I got old enough and there was stuff on TV 
you know, pop stars that I could like new kids on the block and stuff. They could take me to those concerts and, and they like really encouraged that. And my dad would take pictures at the concerts and everything. And it was sort of just on a hobby level, but um, you're right. Like at least I had that sort of um, culturally inclined background. That, when, when, think... when your music taste changed to theirs, what sort of music did you at first tend towards? Oh, well, I mean, I loved everything that I was raised on. I love like rock and roll in general, like the 50s thing to me um, was really kind of like just, yeah, rooted me into kind of rock and roll. And um, I mean, my taste shifting from theirs, I mean, I, I'm from that kind of 80s, 90s TV generation where it was like new kids on the block and tiffany and da, da, da. but my first two favorite bands before i kind of got diluted into the pop thing as a kid were heart you know the rock and roll band heart and poison the like hair metal band they're my two favorite bands so the first cassette i ever bought was was poison i don't know why i was like drawn to them or whatever but and and heart to this day remain like one of my all time favorite bands. So a really really far cry away from everything that you see in Tramps. But um, I'm interested in sort of uh, all sorts of regions musically. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, because I'm of the obviously of the generation of a lot of the people that you interviewed uh, mm -hmm. for the film. When when I was growing up, of course, Bowie was the uh, the biggest figure, but it wasn't just about his music. It was what he represented to me as a gay man of that era, or, you know, gay kid of that era, um, mm -hmm. who was confused about sexuality. And then, you know, along came Bowie, and suddenly I saw someone where I belonged, in a way. And that was part of the attraction of, of the whole Bowie thing, and part of the attraction of that scene did you have anything like that when you when when you grew up well this all sounds now i'm really embarrassed about talking about the nickets on the block when you had david bowie it's not really fair but um <laughs> i mean no I, I you know i'm just being honest about it like as a kid if we're talking about that like i mean when i was a teenager and and you know had more autonomy over sort of seeking things out and um you know maybe more um subversive content or whatever but there wasn't really a boy there was a madonna though and madonna you know was you know like the life breath especially for someone living in a a small town just seeing whenever she put out a video or whatever you would just kind of be like oh my god like you would learn so much that nobody you know your my parents would never be able to teach me that kind of way so i always think of like madonna as being my my like second birth you know like my personal birth like oh there's a world out there and there's a lot there's a lot of strange stuff happening out there so I think that Madonna was kind of the thing for for me and my generation in terms of and of course boy George was around at that time so that was kind of like my sisters were older than me so I, and I still have like a her culture club like badge that was in the thing of badges and I remember that being just kind of like a source of confusion and an interest like the the whole is it a boy or a girl thing you know it was really enjoyable so though that that was a great thing about the time that I was really young is that yeah I was listening to new kids on the block and stuff but all of the kind of slightly older generations of artists were also 
super present because pop music and pop television was like really, really, really thriving. So it was all, you know, it was kind of an intergenerational situation. And um, of course, yeah, like that's when Duran Duran and Boy George and all of these um, sort of pop stars that I end up looking at in Tramps, um, that was the kind of seed of when I discovered all that stuff. But of course it was just in the this big package of pop music. So there wasn't any sort of <clears throat> nuance or history to, to my relationship to them until, yeah. And that's really what the movie tries to do is tries to get to the people behind the pop stars. And, and, and by the time this badge got to my house in Kincardine, Ontario, you know, everyone in the UK was probably long over it or, you know, it, I didn't have any scale. Um, so have you, have you, I mean, I'll get to the film in a second, but have you yourself oh, been in any particular scenes? Because this is very much about a scene and it's very much about the 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 key people that I knew as the key people back then um, in the scene. But in your terms, have you ever been in a, in a scene of, of, music or a, a certain scene in in Canada well I've never really been great at um kind of adhering to one one population you know musically or anything I um I worked at a record store for a long time and I I would definitely go to like punk shows and stuff because there's a really great punk scene in Toronto and 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 later you know friends of mine were the promoters of those shows and um that was the kind of thing that like within my friend group that I kind of had more of an investment in than a lot of the people um, from my core friend group. But also it was kind of like an indie rock time when I was working in record stores and stuff. So it's weird to think of that as a scene because it's so blase. It's just kind of like a white people, <laughs> you know, nodding. It's not like very exciting to talk about, but um, yeah. Uh, of course that, but in terms of like queerness, I think that was the organus, you know, um, that's when a really hardcore sort of identity started developing around, yeah, my, my, my friend group. There was a really um, amazing artist called Will Monroe who promoted parties here and stuff. And that was my most intense um, experience in terms of when you think of something like the Blitz or something, or like the, you know, um, a, a community that's based around sort of nightlife and 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 culture in that way, um, club culture. It was through this party Vaseline, which was like a big gay rock and roll party, like the only one of its kind that became this kind of phenomenal thing in this city. And that really advanced, that really collected art makers, musicians, just freaks, intergenerational people and also like the performance of clothes and 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 sexuality and stuff in an alternative kind of way like outside of uh, mainstream gay culture so that really I think solidified all of those things the pop music the punk music um the obsession with culture because Will's work was very much about and actually that's how I um discovered Lee Bowery was through this artist Will Monroe and um this is long before Lee Bowery was kind of like a household name and really weird households. Um, so I think that that 
I'm starting to see people younger than me are are calling me up, university students and everything, being like, oh, we're doing our thesis or whatever on uh, Will Monroe. And and they are kind of mythologizing. He had a a, a bar called the Beaver, which is was kind of like a hub um, for everyone. And people are kind of mythologizing that now, like, oh, tell us about the beaver scene and everything. And that was really present, actually. I know we're not talking about the movie yet, but when I was reflecting about the Blitz, thinking like, I don't know, do I really want to talk about a bar that I went to like 20 years ago? You know, because at the end of the day, that's what the Blitz is, is just a bar. And they did things all over the town and, you know, in, in, in other parts of England and everything. So comparatively like in terms of a scene that's that's I guess the long story the long way around but I think that that kind of um queer art scene was the thing that solidified everything for me in terms of a community so what was the trigger for the for this film then I had done a film before that was released in 2013 and it was about a a group like a creative collective called um fifth column they were a band um but they also incorporated a lot of different like elements of film and, and music. And basically, like I said, like that movie was originally supposed to try and make me feel better about living in Toronto. And my friend, Bruce LaBruce, uh, who's like a notable um, filmmaker, he, we, he just used to kind of like regale me with these stories about punk houses and, and, and stuff in Toronto and, I was able to put a visual to like where those houses were in Toronto. And now it's just like Tim Hortons and condominiums and really disposable stuff. So the origin of that movie was trying to remind myself that this, it was a cool place to live. You know, I was just trying to create something interesting to like live within. Um, And because of the interest in like queer core and everything, I got to travel with that movie for like two years and, I I had previously had a um pref- I was like a Brit popper, okay? I mean, once I did get old enough to discover David Bowie and everything like that, I did, you know, I realized that all of my kind of interest in like film and music and art and everything um did be kind of like what's it called? Not an anglophile, but that kind of thing, you know. I could I do have to kind of admit that there were leanings towards Anglophilia, which probably is horrific for um, you to hear. But um, basically, I had this like foundation of interest in like um, a lot of British subcultures already. And of course, the punk thing, once I started learning about like the actual origins of of um, that as I got older, yeah, it kind of became my thing. So then when I went to London and also I was like a huge in I got into like British indie pop and everything and obviously the Smiths and just Morrissey and R.I.P. and just um and all, all that so I kind of already really 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 wanted to go to London and I traveled a lot but I hadn't been there and I really had like a fetish for it and when I arrived um at the festival I ended up meeting all of these people that were kind of peripherally incorporated into stuff that I love like I loved you know the 90s British stuff like electronica and like massive attack and you know all just everything um so I started seeing you know that you would go out to a club or something and then 
like I met Jeffrey Hinton and then Jeffrey started telling me about all these other people and they were all kind of just really there. You could kind of speak to them and it reminded me of, and we were learning about these, these squats, these like essentially punk houses. And it kind of mirrored what was going on with the movie I did about fifth column. Um, but I had already had discussions about like Michael Clark and Lee Bowery with like a few people in Toronto. And so I was already really interested in that community. So like, when I went to London and I saw Jeffrey and Julia and all of these people around, um, and also kind of having this beginning of this fear of like, why, why did I make a movie? You know, like, what am I going to do now? How am I going to pay my rent? Da, 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 da. So um, I don't know, just, just the tangibility of everything in London really inspired me. And I kind of knew I wanted to do something there and I wanted to originally go back to this idea of these punk houses and the geography of them around the city. Cause I heard this story that I think boy George was saying that, uh, you know, one, one spot would have running water or one would have heat or whatever. One would have a phone line and, and boy George told the story about, I think he was at Jeffrey's um, national portrait gallery, like talk that he did there about his footage. And he, boy, George kind of exclaimed like, wait a minute, I didn't know there was a phone line in the squat that whole time. Like, you know, I was going down the road and I just, that was kind of the thing that really like linked me in. And I was like, oh my God, that's really hilarious. And there's a lot of stories you can tell about people because I saw these squats as like networks of, of creatives, like hubs. And, and then I thought, okay, well then there's one over here and this road and that road and that road. So you have all of these essentially creative collectives, even though they're just kids living together and making the most of it you know in retrospect you could look at them as creative hu like hubs so that's kind of where the origin of it was and I just got really inspired by everyone I met in that first trip to London I knew I wanted to come back and just kind of it just felt really comfortable for me there so um I didn't really know what the shape of Tramps would be and now it's like so drastically far from from just focusing on that aspect of things, but that was the root of um, of of my interest in doing a movie there. And also, like everywhere you go in London, is from a song somewhere. You know, every single thing that you look at is sort of immortalized in song or film, right? So it's like even to this day, now I've been there a million times, and I'm so excited to come back. But I'll still see something out of the corner of my eye and be like, oh my God, that's from the Smith song and blah, blah, blah. You know, like some random thing that's referenced. So luckily for me, I'm not exhausted of, you know, politically and, and just by like the reality of the of the um, social political climate uh, climate there. So I'm still able to kind of get excited about it <laughs> and um, enjoy all of those kind of uh, like egg, what are they called? Eggs when you hide it. Easter eggs around London of cultural Easter eggs, subcultural Easter eggs. So, I mean, you talk about the social political climate as it, as it were today, but if you look yeah. at the social political climate in the in the seventies, uh, where obviously punk came out of, and then you know the the new romantic era was sort of triggered from that. But that you know that it was a pretty dark society in a lot of ways. I mm. mean, you know incredibly homophobic incredibly misogynist um and and everyone was incredibly poor i mean i you know i mean everyone was on the dole that i knew as well that were just you know on uh, social security and um and 
it was just a really dark place to live. And I think that's part of that was was the life force of what was to come, the reaction against it, and also Thatcher, which is something that you go into um in the movie. How mm-hmm. how many um how many of, of the people that you interviewed were really aware of how this all came out of a very dark period and sort of became visibly the complete antithesis of this dark period. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was trying to kind of push that narrative of like the idea of, um, you know, the performance of fantasy and the irony of like this high glamour that the new romantics kind of embodied. Um, it, it seemed like an obvious response to the um, political climate in London. And I, everyone, you know, we spoke about it at length, but I didn't want to, <clears throat> there were so many things, like even with the squatting thing, you know, when you get into the conversation about like housing, <laughs> you know, because like that's a huge, um, you know, especially in Toronto, it's a huge, there's so much space, but then, none of it is for like people who need it um so i didn't want to get too deep into like politics because i think that's better for somebody else i'm more like fashion cool images you know um and really interested in like people so of course that was central to most of the conversations but i also just felt like every thing you see on the bbc i was really aware of like the stuff that's been said a million times and you know these montages of like riots and 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 everything with judy blame there was like a lot of conversation about south london because he was really part of a more political um community down there activists and everything so that you know unfortunately a lot of those conversations ended up on the on the cutting room floor because um it was just lofty and that kind of thing just i didn't want it to the the, the politics of it all to become the central conversation i wanted it to be like in the background of the people that you were talking to. So I wanted you to sense it, but not like have the film be the thing that's trying to sort out all those political details. So, but, but um, I mean, it definitely, yeah, I think that the film does manage to kind of drop in these reminders that whether these kids knew it or not, um, what they were doing out of the, ashes of of the punk thing i mean it was just a reaction i mean it's like youth culture is reactionary maybe less so now but like um yeah i'm not sure whether they knew that they were responding to that political climate or not but i think punk got boring i mean essentially when it first when it first came up it was completely inspiring and everyone, you know, was because it was such a reaction against society as well. It was such a sort of slap in the face of society. So there was the the youth aspect to it. But at one point, everyone uh, became a punk and it became a sort of marketing thing and it got a bit boring. So I think that sort of may have played into the, um, uh, yeah, the fundament of what was, uh, what was to come. Did you find any similarities um, between these people? Because in particularly in pop culture, the outsider plays an enormous role in pop culture. Do you think they were all, I mean, I consider myself 
uh, an outsider, mm -hmm. someone who grew up as an outsider. And you, you know, the way you describe um, um, yourself, I think you've probably had some of that yourself. So people who are sort of in, interested in, in culture or active in culture are often outsiders. Did they all have that in common? I think that if you ask anybody, you know, if they have ever felt like an outsider, everyone's going to say yes. I've never had anyone say no. Um, I think everyone kind of identified as such. Um, I don't know. I just feel like the type of people I interview and I ask that question, they all say, oh, I've always felt like a bit of an outsider. I've always felt a bit different. And the, the truth is I probably wouldn't be sat there in a room with them or asking them any questions if they didn't have that that origin story of feeling like an outsider because anything, you know, anything cool, anything that manages to inspire sort of originates in the periphery, right? So I think that it's just sort of intrinsic an intrinsic experience for um, most interesting people. Um, maybe not even just feeling like an outsider, but just the kind of desire to 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 know more or see more or or stray from, you know, stray from the, the string of cliches that I'm giving you. But you know what I mean. Um, so how difficult is it to make a documentary that doesn't center on an individual, but centers, you know, around a group of people? Um, does that does that provide any other difficulties, do you feel? I don't know. I've never done anything. This is my second feature film, and I've they're both on collectives and kind of have some sort of default interest in like um, communities that are created, like a space that's imagined and then realized, you know, by, you know, <clears throat> by accident or, or on purpose. Um, so I actually think that every time that I'm interviewing somebody for a movie at that time, the whole movie is about them. I feel like everyone is so sort of, unique in this movie that I when you know body map is on on camera it's like I could make a whole movie about body map there's so much content there's their history is so um you know every single person in this in this film I think you could have an entire movie about and it was actually the struggle was um not being able to fully realize all of those narratives like in this one movie so at one point in time it was going to be like people were like Kevin you have to make this a a series like a tv series because it's just too much information so um that's really the only um like struggle that there was 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 not being able to tell everyone's entire story or or yeah so trying to figure out a way that accurately or or um sincerely represented them while they were on screen and 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 their intentions rather than trying to like warp their words to serve whatever story I'm trying to tell I kind of really wanted everyone to kind of have their own say and their own experience and and kind of diversify the backgrounds of everybody um that's the only struggle really is that I kind of just want to know more and I want to share more so even now I'm like hoping to um collaborate with different some different people on maybe taking stuff off the cutting room floor and being able to share more of those stories in some capacity. Um, but no, it, for me, I, 
I guess I'm just sort of like thirsty to meet all these people. And for me, it's really selfish because every time that we interviewed somebody, it was just somebody that I would be dying to talk to and spend time with. So um, I guess the only, the only difficulty is like my, my greed, my like, my greed and my like need to know more and share more. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I mean, you mentioned earlier about the scene in Canada. You mentioned earlier about, like, you having a sort of uh, uh, mentor as well, someone that uh, has taken you under his wing and and also Bruce Booth and also giving you um, input and, and information into your life. And there was the same thing in in the film, can you can you um, tell me about that? Because it had people like um, Andrew Logan, um, and uh, and it had um, and I forgot his name, and I've interviewed him, and I've completely lost it there. Uh, the gay filmmaker, what's his name? Derek Jarman. Derek Jarman. Yeah, it had people like Derek, you know, like references to Derek Jarman and things like that. Um, and it and it really showed their importance in mm. terms of nurturing other mm. people uh in that scene yeah i mean that's exactly what was happening there was that like i i do feel like um bruce and having access to like his knowledge and he's a very generous person and has sort of nurtured my my urge to this film thing which is like pretty self it's like sort of a horrible lifestyle um but uh it was really became really important to me to show to recontextualize these giants and take them out of these echelons of historical importance and put them all on a playing field i think that that's the thing we forget in the conversation about queerness or whatever um i'm not a huge fan of that word right now but we don't have to get into that um that that a really important part of that to me is that is supporting the next generation and sort of working against this kids these days kind of attitude where I find it so much more um, productive and sort of, it just generates more, uh, it just generates more of a platform for the next generation to create stuff based on what you know, like sharing your, passing the baton, sharing your, what you know. And of course the New Romantics was entirely based on like the ideologies that punk kind of had, it just looked different. You know, and that's the thing too, it's about my kind of mantra of the whole thing was the idea of movement and like the the central idea there being move. Julia said something to me that was really amazing that didn't end up in the movie. I don't even know if it was on camera, but um, about how by the time everyone was starting to dress like punks, then like everyone else, like in that quite small scene were dressed like robots because they were listening to Gary Newman. So they were constantly doing the next thing. And that's what fashion is. And that's what, that's what art is. And that's what punk is. It's just kind of like embracing the newness. And um, <clears throat> I don't, I, I didn't really want to see it as like chunks of time. And then this was dead. And then this started, you know, I didn't want to divorce all those things. I wanted to, and the thing with Derek Jarman was kind of scary to do that, but I just started seeing when I was talking to like Michael Costiff or, or Dougie Fields or Andrew Logan, like they just called him Derek, you know, for my generation, he's like this queer film God. Um, 
And it was really striking to hear people just being like, oh, and then Derek did this and Derek did that and blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, because of course that's something like that's fetishized by the generations to follow. So I thought it was really powerful to kind of like pursue that first name basis kind of thing with Derek Jarman where he, where people have heard of him, but maybe they haven't heard of Andrew Logan or weren't able to see them as people. And then when John Mabry comes in, like he's a younger, hungry filmmaker person. And that really reminded of, of me coming and meeting people like Bruce or Bruce or whatever. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to focus on that, the sort of these foundations that each generation laid for the next one in a kind of positive way. And like before making this movie, I was not a very optimistic type of person or like didn't have a lot of access to like positive thinking, let's say. And um, actually this movie was kind of me wanting to to sort of find some sort of optimism and I just thought that it was nice to focus on, on on the yeah the nurturing aspects um intergenerational aspects of not just queer communities but like um artistic communities because our you know the art world like the fashion world and everything is really like um cutting and it's all about you know personal survival so it was nice to kind of show a bit of intergenerational warmth there and also it was really interesting for me just to demystify um demystify uh all of that stuff that demystify my own perception of of these like queer god people and then he started seeing of course when we get into aids and everything you start seeing like how arbitrary um that type of success can be um because there's so many incredible like so many people in this film are monumental to me like in terms of their influence um on Which my arbitrary well i mean yeah every, you know of course poor george worked really hard to be where he was and he wanted that and he manifested that and and you know derek jarman he he did the work, he made the films, he showed the film, you know, it's all just very practical, but it's not to say that Body Matt weren't making their clothes and wearing to them a club. It's not to say Judy Blame wasn't, you know, this like incredible, like multifaceted artist. It's arbitrary in the way that, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that they didn't deserve their fame. I, I love character. I mean, I love Boy George and everything, but, um, I just saw the creativity in so many people that weren't celebrated kind of thing. And maybe arbitrary is the wrong word because um, it sounds like it wasn't, their fame wasn't deserved, but um, I just feel like there are missed opportunities in terms of the cultural embrace that some people um, ended up receiving. And, you I know, think that's you... a really good point. I think that's uh, absolutely true. I think there's another thing in there because you talked about the intergenerational thing, but also it was, in, you know, I, I, when I, after university, when I moved to London, um, my first club was Cha Cha. So I was late uh, on the scene and uh, I completely fell in love in, with Lee Bowery. And uh. so for, for me, um, Lee Bowery was this, you know, uh, amazing interesting fascinating um, um figure Terrifying. in every way 
and also some someone that because I was a periphery of the scene and but only touched into it it sort of also made me want to do something as well so yeah. I think like that small community people feed off each other and to the extent I remember um I invited Lee and Trojan and I think he was called David and I can't remember his name but three of them they came round in what you politely term the Indian themed outfits in the in the, I didn't in... turn them that I didn't turn them that John Mabry turned them that yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> don't cancel me don't cancel me not until not until people see the movie and then you can cancel me yeah, <laughs> no, I'm joking. But anyhow, they came around my house and I filmed them eating cream cakes and doing the ironing because it's the only thing I could think of as my first movie. And my boyfriend taped over the taped um, some um, Schwarzenegger film over the bloody uh... <laughs> movie and ruined my life. But and then I interviewed Lee for my demo tape for MTV. Wow. Um, so the you know they played a role in in lots of different lots of people's lives, and yeah. I think the fact that there were so many interesting different characters, and they were of they were in a sense available. Do you know what I mean? So everyone yeah. in that scene could use each other, and that comes out um, also in your film how each of them was somehow inspired and moved, and in a way I suppose understood each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, you know, at least from afar, at least from my perspective or the perspective in the film, there's like a symbiosis and a, like a support network creatively um, that's tangible there. And and again, yeah, trying to reinforce those those like positive aspects. Um, again, whether they know that because people can be really catty and bitchy and competitive, so try and cover that too in the movie, but. Um, I just love the cross. I love the cross pollination of everything. I love when I can see a music video and I can see, you know, Michael Clark's in there and he's wearing Lee Bowery's clothes and then the ball are playing. I love, I love the mashup of it all. Like the sort of, um, yeah, the way they kind of remixed each other's work, you know, into this, into like a new, a new kind of, like a vision that is that they all have a part of, you know. Well, it's like with John Mabry, John Mabry wanting to make a film, and then he's got his actors available in a sense. You know what I mean? And that was uh, yeah. that was the uh, part of the the beauty of that. One thing that was incredibly moving, and I think uh, somehow society has completely f overlooked and and forgot it. Um, obviously, I was in London and uh, on the gay scene during the AIDS epidemic. And mm. people would just disappear, and then you'd find out six months later that they died. And there was this sort of, it you know, it just decimated um, whole uh, scenes of, of of London. And I remember going to a nightclub and in 1992 interviewing the owner and talking about 1982 in his club. And I asked him why he shut the club, and he said everyone died. And this wow. was for me this amazing moment of realization that of how big this was and what you you've done is you've really brought up people who were on who would who would not necessarily be remembered you've allowed them to be remembered and i found that really touching and and moving what triggered that for you um yeah it's really great to hear you talk about that because um 
the AIDS thing was kind of inescapable. And and this story, you know, when you're making a movie, you're like, how's it going to end? You know, I didn't want it to be a plot point. But also, like, when I'm talking about the diversity of art practices and how important it is if you are just going to a bar and everybody's being creative together and and those echelons that develop when somebody becomes more visible than the other and that arbitrariness, I kind of wanted to show that these people, these were people that, you know, when I, when I started asking people about the AIDS thing, um, speaking of tangibility, you know, sure, the idea of celebrity and sort of history and glamour and all that stuff um, was tangible, but also the sadness and the loss of friends, like that I have, because of my age, I'm starting to experience more and more, um, was so present. It wasn't like, because for my generation, it's more like on TV or in books or in queer culture or in gay culture da, 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 or movies. <clears throat> but I'd never, I mean, I'd met people obviously who'd lived through the AIDS crisis, but um, it, it was in terms of me trying to have that conversation and how that would look in this movie, because I didn't want to ignore it, but I didn't want to use it as a plot point. So trying to find a way that I could respectfully um, navigate that in a way that people who were around and lost so many friends um, would feel like it was handled in a in a respectful way because it was just really really striking to me like you know the way that the air would change in a room when we kind of got to that part of the conversation um, <clears throat> and it felt really heavy and just really really yeah that um living with loss that never that never really goes away was just so um inescapable so i i don't remember how we started with the idea of i mean i think i was talking with scarlet and john and just being like this is weird but can you send me a list of names of people your friends, you know, <clears throat> and that was a hard question for people to answer. I don't think that anybody wanted to list the name of their dead friends or anything. Right. But Scarlett was really helpful with that. And that was very scary because I wanted to include as many people as possible to kind of, oh, the pictures are still happening. The pictures are still happening. The pictures, you know, like, like I wanted that part of the movie to feel like you were like locked in this, this, this groove that, you know, that, that, the experience seemed, you know, that's how people describe it. Like, <clears throat> um, and then basically I didn't know, you know, there could have been so many more people, obviously that were listed in that part of the movie. Um, and that was the struggle. Speaking of arbitrary, you know what I mean? Like that, that was just a group of names that we managed to get from people when, and that happened really late, like in the editing process, kind of like really committing to that. And, um, and I guess the goal was just to continue the um, trying to level out this whole history that we start with, like the kind of the 60s and 70s with Dougie and Andrew and and just trying to put everyone on the same line. Like I was trying to get Boy George in the movie, but I didn't want him in the movie as Boy George. I wanted him in the movie as somebody on the same plane as John Mabry, as the same plane as like. So whether you're Derek Jarman or Boy George or Princess Julia or Jeffrey or Body Matt, like everyone's kind of on the same, everyone's treated 
uh, in the same way as a community, as a peer. <clears throat> and so when it came to the AIDS thing, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel of how we talk about that, um, I just wanted to reinforce, I wanted to use it in a way to reinforce like, well, look at being part of a creative community often just means like maybe you have a desk job, but at night you go and you hang out with artists or whatever. That's that's contributing to the community. That's that's part of the um, ecosystem or whatever of when we look back at community. And of course, with time, that gets that conversation gets re rewritten. Um, and 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 I feel like we get stuck in a loop, and we don't kind of. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to. I just wanted to show that these were a people, but also creative contributors to the scene, and that their contribution wasn't less than anyone else's. Um, and also, you know, present the idea of like if that didn't happen, if they didn't, if they didn't uh, die, you know, maybe they would be one of the people who were selected to be like international pop stars or whatever or you know and i just wanted to show that the that the um diversity of artists and art practices and and just um perspectives wasn't limited to the people that you see on screen or even to people who would ever want to be on screen or be on screen um that they were still just as important to the story to the contribution of that that art community as um the other ones i mean what a lot that comes out of the the film is obviously uh the importance of of that era for what was to come these people that came out of it and what they produced from you know judy blames as fashion designer from uh john mabry making films and um you know boy george who you mentioned and all these all these people in in a lot of them in in connecting but in different cultural areas and but it's more than that because you also talk about things like the face and the id an id magazine which also came essentially out of that scene mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because when i when i think back it didn't occur to me that it was in that um you know that that scene came first and they came afterwards what sort of things, you know, was that something new to you when you found that out or? No, because that was really, I mean, everyone I was talking to in the, in the movie were, were, you know, like Judy Blame, you know, was styling that, that world like very, very early. Um, it's funny when I was in London last time, um, there was this cool sort of new store called Waste, which is like run by these cute design skatery type guys and it's just like a really it's like a consignment store for artists and they had all these old id magazines which of course sell for like hundreds and hundreds of pounds now which is so depressing if anyone's out there that has a box of them and wants to to donate them to me the struggling artist i would love that because i'll never be able to to afford them but um I was flipping through and every single page was like Julia, body map. Um, you could see Judy, you could see everybody in there, you know, Mark LeBon um, and Jeffrey, you know, there was profiles on like VHS was the new thing. <laughs> um, 
And so I brought Jeffrey there and it was so hilarious because we like went through the magazines together and the kids that ran the shop were just like, oh, like it was so weird for them because they're quite young, like to connect this human man and then the person in the magazine and he wasn't like mummified or anything, you know, it was like, it was really cool to see those um, connections. But yeah, I learned a lot, a lot about the realities of like ID being a, a, a zine and, you know, Nana Cherry, her job when she moved to London was to like staple the zines together. And again, with the branching out and the, how everything's connected. Um, so I did really learn all about the, uh, that reality as I was making the movie for sure. But it was so um, connected directly to the community because of its origins origins in um, being a zine and also that being like a punk thing where it's a direct connection. Of course, now we think of it as like a, you know, days and ID and living. I mean, they're all kind of disconnected from any reality it's you know it's a fashion thing it's an advertising thing it's a marketing thing um so i think that that was really central to the type of um uh to the nature of of that community yeah how i mean what really um hit me as well was the strength of these people today you know i know scarlett has some health problems but you know she had an incredible strength when you know being uh being interviewed and i know that that must have been um the interview with judy blaine must have been um some years ago now because um he died in 2018 i think mm -hmm. um and but everyone came across with an amazing uh strength and i didn't feel like it was sort of a reminiscing in any way it was somehow more powerful than that how did you know how did you see that and how surprised were you with how they are today well my kind of interview like process was very selfish because I was worried about my future and yeah like paying the rent and just survival and um so resilience was really at the core of of all of my intentions um the fact that Jeffrey and Julia still DJ like every single night and like um, they just were so, um, yeah, still kind of working, still practicing. And um, so that's what I wanted to focus on. Like, how can I stay interesting and stay involved and stay um, interested? How did they do it? You know, cause like you get old and you get jaded and you know, you don't want to go out anymore and you don't listen to any music. And so I kind of thought, wow, like there's a way around that and wanted to just kind of glean whatever um, insight they had into how I could have a similar like path as a, as somebody aging. So a lot of my intent was to kind of like source information from them on how I can stay cool. <laughs> as I get older. One uh, interesting character in in the film is the most contrary character as well, Philip Salon, who mm -hmm. is a quite contrary figure and loved or hated. Um, and, um, but very important in that scene. Um, 
I, I love the fact that he is so contrary in in there. That he's always he's always been like that. So it's sort of the real reality. And I wanted to just uh, tell you a story because I went to the Camden Palace years ago, and Lee Bowery was there, and we were kissing. And then we, I was supposed to go back to his that night for sex. Oh my god! <laughs> it's that sort of podcast. <laughs> and. Um, Anyhow, Lee didn't want to leave the club until the end. So we went our separate ways. And the idea was we would meet at the end of the club. And then it was a friend of mine's birthday. And uh, she set fire to Philip Salon's hair. And oh. it went up in flames. And he shot across the room. And we got thrown out by bouncers and sort of half beaten up with Philip Salon shouting, you will never, ever get into another nightclub in London ever again. And oh that was God. my date with Lee Bowery. It was over. Wow. That sounds like a hot date. <laughs> exactly. But he did present a show with me on MTV later on in 1988, and yeah, um, which was, uh, was really fun. So I want to thank you for this because it's not about bringing up, uh, necessarily bring up my memories, but what I really liked about it was, shown, was showing the importance and the impact that these unsung a lot of them unsung heroes um had in that period and on our culture and i really think uh you brought that out in in a fantastic and a very moving way so kevin heggie thank you very much thank you so much i really really appreciate that and thanks for pointing out that you had an emotional response to it because that was really it's still scary to me to tread other people's histories you know so i really appreciate your your kind words and you're taking the time to talk to me acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend it's the question that's on everyone's mind how do you live a good life how much do work health relationships matter what about happiness meaning money and love what if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.